Welcome back to another episode of Option 5. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Rajesh Nerlikar. He is the owner of Prodify. And Prodify is a vision-led product management group whose mission is to elevate the craft of product management and help companies maximize customer, shareholder, and social, social value. That sounds right in line with what we are trying to talk about here on Option 5. He has a ton of experience working with product teams, both from startups all the way to enterprises. And we had an awesome conversation. We spent a lot of time talking about his framework, the vision-led product management framework. And it's incredible to think about how he's connecting all the different dots of the things that we have talked about over the multiple episodes here on Option 5 into a very simple framework that um, he takes his clients through. So let's learn from Rajesh what uh, makes a vision-led product management team. Let's jump into it. Well, let's let's jump in. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, this how you got into this whole world of product, and it sounds like consulting around that. I'd love to hear more. So why don't, I'll give you give you the table, and you can get started. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Uh, I'll walk you through my story chronologically, so hopefully it makes sense on how I ended up where I did. Perfect. Um, so I grew up in Dallas. I went to college at UT Austin. Did engineering. Was not sure that like something super technical like chip design was going to be the right path for me so i got a, min- a minor in business and i went to go work for accenture for five years after school and i uh, started out pretty technical as a software engineer and architect but found that i was kind of more interested in why our government clients were asking us to build the software we were building than actually like building it <laughs> uh, myself and so i transitioned into a, a business analyst role and that was my first step into product um, this was like old school waterfall products, uh, but been doing it for more than 15 years now. Um, I, you know, kind of looked at Accenture and, and wasn't sure that consulting was the right long-term career path for me. Um, in the meantime, my dad had started his own company, so I kind of saw how exciting that was. So um, I went to business school up at Michigan and used that as a way to transition into the world of startups. So my first year, I worked for a student-run uh, company that got acquired a couple years after graduation in the ride-sharing space. So it was kind of cool to see that. Very nice. Um, yeah. And then second year, I worked with a, another classmate of mine, and we started a company called TerraPerks. Our mission was to encourage people to take like environmentally responsible decisions. Oh, nice. Um, Good. And our first product was uh, a Facebook app that lets you compare your energy usage to your friends and family. It's all about competition. Um, I love it. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> And so I spent about a year and a half after we got into an accelerator to kind of keep that kind of trying to sell that product to utility companies and then tried home energy professionals. And then I got engaged and realized that a salary would be really nice. <laughs> I know how that goes. Uh, yeah. And so there was a company we had been following for many years called Opower out in Washington, DC. They were doing something very similar. And so I joined them as a product manager and to be perfectly honest, I had never heard of the role of product manager. I think it's something that sort of like became more popular while I was in business school and I hadn't been thinking about, um, you know, that that like looking for jobs full time and things like that. So I looked at it and I was like, oh, this is a lot of what I really love doing and enjoy doing. And so um, I spent about a year and a half as a product manager at Opower and this was actually sort of before their IPO. And my mandate was kind of looking at how to improve our margins to, mm. to help us get our valuation when we went public. Yeah, and of course. so I did I, um, we, we automated a lot of the tasks that our operations team did manually. Mm-hmm. Um, 
as an example, uh, you know, we sent these home energy reports that show how your energy usage compares to your neighbors. And yeah. on the back of every report, there were three energy saving tips. We automated the way that those tips were selected using sort of an algorithm. Um, awesome. So that's one of the, the big sort of like things that I did on my uh, from a product perspective. What I learned when I was at Opower is that a lot of people were responding to our messages, not not just because they cared about the environment, but also because they knew that they could save money on their energy bills yeah. by lowering their energy usage. Um, and I started doing a little bit more research on sort of the financial sort of situation that was brewing in, here in America. And I uh, decided to join another startup out in DC in the fintech space. And so I joined Hello Wallet as a senior product manager. And we made a financial wellness product that we sold as an employer benefit. And oh, so okay. um, I was there for about a year before we got acquired by one of our investors, uh, Morningstar out in Chicago. So I ran the product management team for a year after the acquisition. My manager moved to a role within Morningstar pretty soon after the acquisition. And then um, about a year after that, Morningstar asked me to also come out to Chicago and take over uh, a broader product portfolio. So uh, there I was managing a, a, um, probably about a $40 million portfolio uh, within sort of workplace benefits product suite. Uh, with a team of about 20 people. So that nice. was product managers, product operations, and technical project managers. Um, so you've been so, jumping around, you're jumping around. Note to self, hire you and you get acquired is what I'm hearing the theme is. So. <laughs> <laughs> but the correlation there, I think, is... Uh, okay, fair enough. Uh, no, it was, it's been a great experience to see sort of what, what these sort of exits look like. Yeah. Actually, both of them had double exits, and so it was always wow. interesting. So we went public and then got acquired by, by Oracle. Um, Hello Wallet got acquired by Morningstar and then later sold to KeyBank, who was our, our biggest customer uh, at the time a few years later. So really interesting stories there. Which again is fun, but comes with its own challenges and we can get into that later, but there's there's pros and cons to that sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, when I got to Chicago, I, I realized that I had kind of missed the startup world. And so I started advising startups on the side at 1871 mm. up there. Yeah, um, and I really that's a great it, space, so, by the way. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Um, in, in fact, I've just been following one of their their uh, companies that's come come out of their uh, cameo, and it sounds like they're just gaining a lot of momentum, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> cool. um, and so, uh, a couple of years ago, we decided to move down to Austin to be closer to friends and family. And so, I left Morningstar. I reached back out to um, Ben Foster, who had run product and design when I was at Opower, so I was on his product team. Um, he had sort of retired the day of the Opower IPO and started mm. doing some product advisory work to kind of give back to the, the tech community in DC and, and I think probably to keep himself busy. Sure. Yeah. And um, I had sort of seen how he turned it into a full-time sort of gig over the years. And so I reached back out. Turned out to be good timing because he was actually thinking about joining one of his clients full-time. Oh, okay. And so he ended up doing that last year and I took over the practice like a, a few months before that. And so we had a little bit of a transition. And so it's been uh, almost two years now that I've been doing this. Um, and I'm, yeah, so as like a sort of product advisor and coach, there are sort of three big buckets that I'm working with teams on. Um, one is vision and strategy. Where are you going? How are you going to get there? Why in the competitive landscape that exists today would yeah. your product win out in the market? Which is um, incredible. I mean, how many people aren't even asking those questions? So that's super important. Yeah, and, and it's like, it, it's not easy stuff often, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, we know that it's important to have sort of, and that's, I'll talk a little bit about the vision-led product management framework, but hopefully all of this will start making I sense. I peeked at it, I'm, I'm curious, so yeah, that's good. Okay, yeah, I'm excited to tell you more. Um, the, the next big bucket is sort of roadmap execution. So like, hey, how do we make sure we're shipping efficiently? And honestly, we, we look a lot at org structure, kind of looking at sort of Conway's law and shipping the, uh, shipping the org. Mm -hmm. 
we look at processes. We also look at people and the skills that they have in the roles and uh, that they need. So that's like kind of a, another big bucket. And then the last one is um, product team development. So this comes in two flavors. So we help a lot of uh, folks hire their first product manager, especially like startup founders, um, as well as like their second, third, fourth, or fifth. Um, Which is good. Then, That's where you hope they're going, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then we uh, we coach folks from like individual product managers at a startup where they're the only product person to entire product teams at an enterprise organization. And those coaching like engagements take slightly different flavors, but mm -hmm. I'd say the consistent thing is that we do weekly check-ins and we have some assessments that we use to kind of help gauge progress and, and make sure that we're covering all the right skills and, and the role that they're, they're given. So. I mean, there's there's a lot that I want to dive into there. So I, yeah. I want to be I want to be mindful of time here um, to a certain extent. So, what when you think about um, so I love the the fact that you're calling them product teams. That's something that we've been talking about a lot as well. The industry does doesn't. I mean, people don't just don't know what to call this new way of working. Um, what are those product teams? Two sides. What do they look like when you go in? Um, maybe when you're getting started, what's the kind of typical landscape of how most people are thinking about putting these teams together? And then, you know, what is, what are you trying to shift people towards? What do you think is the better way to work, um, as a product team? And there's a couple other questions that come from that, but I just bouncing off of what you just said there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, to clarify, when I said product teams, I meant product managers in particular. Okay, cool. That's helpful. I typically use the word squad to describe the group of people who ship, okay. ship changes to the customer experience um, and I think like like y'all uh, that includes like product engineering design maybe QA and then like once in a while you throw the subject matter expert in there if it's like a regulatory like you know regulatory like perfect yeah um, but I you know there's um like I said we kind of we look at org structure a lot mm -hmm. I think I see a lot of teams who are oriented around technology stacks so you've got the mobile team and the back-end team and then like you know, front end team, which which has its like pros and cons for sure. I think it's very much uh, makes sense to have engineers who are in like similar code bases, like working on things together. Yeah. Um, I think the key thing that you lose with that and like where we normally try to talk to teams is sort of the external customer facing perspective. And so, um, you know, I've got a whole blog post on this, a lot of like the eight ways to organize product <laughs> squads, but um, my, my favorite is a combination of looking at like um, the personas that you serve. So like, you know, I think a big one that a lot of teams face is I build these internal tools that like my operations or customer success team mm -hmm. like and manage, but I'm also responsible for like customer facing user, you know, experiences and products. Um, and so the, the, re the reason that, you know, we'll typically sort of advise on thinking about the personas is like, um, whether or not you think personas are, are good or bad, I think it at least reminds you that this sort of key outcome that the person expects from the product is, mm -hmm. is different and it gives you a different set of KPIs to sort of optimize your roadmap against. Um, and it just helps you, I think as over time, it, it gives the team the ability to become the experts in what is going on in that like person's life that's using our product. What are they trying to accomplish? Why is it important to them? What prompts them to come into the product and start using it? Um, those types of things. And so um, that's probably like the preferred mode. In fact, uh, you know, one of my uh, clients were actually going through this exact sort of like exercise right now, sort of like reorging the, the, the teams and things like that. Um, but that's the, that's sort of like where I see a lot of teams starting and where, yeah. where we're like coaching. I love your focus on end user. I mean, it's, it's so easy to forget it, right? I mean, 
and I, I think we kind of overlook like, okay, yeah, we've all been telling us this focus on the user, focus on the user for such a long time, but then you get to work and there's just, you know, there's just so much code to write, or there's just so many user stories to manage, or there's just so much to do in the backlog, or there's so much buy-in I need to get from leadership. Um, maybe that segues a little bit into you talking a little bit about the vision-led product management framework. Yeah. I, I love any time that someone's built a framework, I get so excited because I love frameworks. So I'm, I'm really curious to, to hear how you came up with this. What is it? How does it work? Yeah, sure. So um, the framework is effectively the culmination of our own like lessons and best practices from like, you know, decades of me and, and my co-advisor, co-founder Ben, like do it beating product people um, yep. at startups and larger companies, um, as well as having advised almost 60 companies now over the past five years. We've kind of seen what happens across different industries and like company stages and team dynamics. Um, so that was what sort of prompted us to, to put the, the best practices into a framework. Um, there are like five key concepts, I would say, with vision-led product management. Um, so the first is to actually define the metrics of success for the product. And for um, we, we, we do this in two ways. Uh, one is obviously looking at what the business would define as success, right? Mm -hmm. ARR, like, you know, um, company valuations maybe for earlier stage sure, companies. That's sure, Something with a dollar sign in front of it. Usually, yeah. Yeah, but what, like you said, the, the easiest, or I think the biggest risk in product management is that you start trying to build a product that just keeps your internal stakeholders happy because mm -hmm. there's so much focus on those metrics. And so we normally start this, you know, these types of engagements with like building the customer outcome KPI pyramid as we call it, which is like, what is the number one thing that that customer is hoping your product is gonna help them accomplish in their lives? Right. Um, and then we use the pyramid framework to sort of like do two things. One, establish a relationship between KPIs, in particular, the leading indicators from the lagging indicators. Mm -hmm. But two, to also make sure that there's like a fight, like a small subset of KPIs. It's not like 35 or 40, but it's maybe like five or seven. Make it achievable um, in some possible way. Yeah, exactly. So because every KPI requires a, a lot of time to like track and report on and communicate and like all those things. Right. So you don't want to have to have too many of them. So that's kind of the first thing is to say, what does success look like for us internally, as well as for our customers um, then you kind of look at that customer metric and you say, okay, so if this is the thing that matters most to us, this is the metric that they use to measure the value of the product. What can we do to deliver like sort of a, um, you know, a customer journey that, that would make it sort of like, you know, 10x better than whatever they have today. And I use 10x just like in the nomenclature. of It pushes like you. It pushes you. Right. Hairy audacious yeah. goals. I get it. Yeah. And so this is where the vision piece comes in. Um, we've gotten a little prescriptive on what we think vision means. And so we use this customer journey um, template and it has six chapters. And the point being, there's a lot of different ways to express a product vision. Some common ones are like the product positioning statement mm -hmm. or like a single slide that has like a few bullets with like features or like the, the sort of like some words that express what the vision is. Right. We don't think that's enough. We think that in order to be like a customer centric product team, what you really need to be worried about is like, what is the customer experience going to look like yep. in three years and being super explicit. And so we use these, uh, this sort of like six chapter customer journey, the six chapters being, um, it starts with a triggering moment when they realize that like their existing solution just isn't cutting it. Um, it starts with a discovery phase, you know, where they're like, maybe they're Googling, maybe they're going to talk to someone to say like, what other products exist out there that would help me achieve this outcome better. Yeah. Then there's sort of evaluation. They might be looking at pricing. They might be looking at app store reviews. They might be talking to other folks. They might be just reading the, the content on the, the product marketing page. 
Um, then it moves into trial. So like in the evaluation phase, they're just trying to decide like, does this look better enough that I should even like give it a shot? Mm-hmm. And there's a trial and that that's really largely encapsulated by the onboarding experience. And like, are you delivering value quickly in that onboarding experience and helping them believe that your product actually is going to help them achieve the outcome they care about? Um, and then ongoing usage, obviously, like, you know, trying to, to use the product regularly. Then it kind of comes full circle back to what we call the switching chapter, which is that moment where something goes wrong with the product and they sort of start falling out of love, love with it, right? Um, so I, I'm like kind of going through this honestly right now. I always try to use like real world examples, but like Zoom has been a little bit of like a, on a rocky sort of like ledge for me with the, with its quality for audio. And I think it like maybe comes back to when they just changed the the Mac version to run like locally on your machine instead uh-huh. of like, and I've I've had some issues with like the microphone with like stability which didn't used to be an issue it used to work great it was perfect right and like yeah we use like you know we use the Kato model to kind of talk about these things but um, they they violated sort of one of my must haves right Mm -hmm. which is what prompted me to start looking for for the next like you know I just started doing some initial discovery or exploration yeah um, so that's like kind of the the format we say like the vision should be expressed in this. We actually use like this comic strip visual, so you can kind of get it on one screen. Mm-hmm. So really easy that someone can read in one minute and see. Oh, okay, I get it, and like I, I understand it. Like obviously mockups are helpful as well to sort of supplement it. Sure. But identify the key outcomes. Envision like what that journey should look like in mm-hmm. three or four years, and the time horizons vary based on company stage. Honestly, sure, sure of course. Um, and then the next the next step is sort of like looking at the creating a strategic plan, which is basically a giant story mapping exercise. Which you know, if you said, okay, so this is what we want the customer experience to look like. Mm-hmm. Here's what it looks like today, and we clearly need to change like these five things. But what's the right sequence to change those things over? Yeah. Um, there's sort of like this story mapping exercise you can do where you say like, okay, like in 2020 we want to make this step, and then in 2021 we're going to make the, the second step, and like. But, but what we actually try to get teams to focus on is that because you're oriented around that customer journey and lots of different teams, marketing, customer success, product, own pieces of that customer journey, it's sort of a cross-functional roadmap for the customer journey as opposed to just the product where the product is usually like zoomed in on like the trial and yep. like usage like chapters of the yep. journey. Yep. It gives you a way to align with other teams who might also be you know doing things that might affect the customer experience, right? I think there's, I, I love so much of that because this, I mean, it touches on so many things that we talk about, whether it's, I mean, in some ways you're building habit loops because um, you're talking about a Q routine reward kind of methodology here. Um, and yeah. then you come back to, there's so much validation and iterative um, nature to actually onboarding person, getting them, you know, actually brought into the service. I like the fact that you use the tools like story mapping and user journey. We do the same thing in our discoveries whatever we call them now. I feel like the name changes every day. Um, we used to call them discoveries. Now they're like strategic alignment sessions or I don't know, whatever, you know, that's, we get to do that as, as consultants. Right. Um, but, um, I think those activities are really helpful and especially for someone who hasn't visualized what that whole flow looks like. They come into it and they might kind of go into a very myopic piece of it. And then they have to come back out because they got to get their work done and they go into another piece of it and they come back out. But to see the entire user journey um, is really interesting how that gives people perspective. Um, what do you, what, what has been some aha moments of someone going through this, this framework with you guys? Well, I think that, um, 
I don't know. I've been guilty of this myself in my career, but like as product people, we just love building stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm happy to tell the story of like this dating app that was a giant flop because oh, I never we've thought- We've all tried to build a dating app. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so like, I think it just becomes really easy to say, I'm going to just start with my onboarding experience, but never think about, but how did someone discover my mm-hmm. like product and why did they even try to, like why, what even got them to the onboarding experience, right? What, what are their current like, um, you know, anchors related to the, their existing solutions? Mm-hmm. What's working with those? Um, and then like, why, why did they decide to try my product, right? So I think that's kind of the big one is that once you start bringing things in this like holistic nature, which is like, this isn't about the user experience from the moment that they decide to like download the app and like register. Right. It's about the entire like All journey. All the way up front, happens. yeah. Um, so I think that's like help folks think about it. The, the switching chapter is kind of interesting, which is like obviously customer success would be zoomed in on this one and saying sure. like, when am I going to like potentially lose, uh, you know, a customer and NPS is probably the best predictor we have. But I think the question is, yeah, but do you have an experience? Have you thought about what that experience would look like mm-hmm. from a customer perspective, right? Like, yes, there's an, maybe there's an email that goes out that says, do you need help? But maybe you should say something else like, hey, I, I, it looks like, you, you know, you might be struggling with this area. Like, do you want to set up a call or like, here's our guide or whatever, you know? Well, now we have tools, whether they're third party or in-house built, that allow us to customize that feedback loop yeah. a lot, lot better than we've ever been able to before. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we've sort of identified key metrics. We've envisioned what that customer journey looks like. We've used story mapping to build a strategic plan that's kind of like multi-years. Yep. Um, then the last two parts are like to actually create a roadmap that balances between strategic like progress, like near-term optimizations or feedback requests, and then technical stability. And then the fifth piece is sort of like, how do you actually execute on that roadmap? So like with the roadmap itself, you know, this is like a hot topic, obviously, for most product folks. Um, Oh, figure that one out for us all. Yeah. (laughs) Well, where we've landed on this is like, okay, it's fine and nice to say, here's our vision of where we want to get to. And here's sort of like a game plan for how we think we need to get there, like some stepping stones maybe. But it's not like you could just then allocate 100% of your product development capacity to just going to work on that stuff, right? And so we use this sort of three buckets or three swim lane model, which is it says like some percentage of your capacity can go towards making strategic progress. Some percentage needs to be like focused on the existing product that's in market, mm-hmm. especially if, not, if it's you know drastically different from where you're trying to get to. That might be like responding to customer feedback requests or like trying to optimize a conversion funnel to like eke out like, you know, a little bit more revenue or retention or this sort of thing. And then there's always the technical stability, uh, the things that engineering is always asking us about and that usually get swept under the rug. But the Let reality is- Let me address is, the technical debt. Let me address, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, have, I don't know, maybe this is just me coming from the financial wellness world, but I know that it's like probably better to just be thinking about your debt at all times as I opposed know. to like realizing yeah, that your debt is crippling and you can't buy a house or a car and like, you know, you're like locked into some situation. So we use this because we realize that almost every product team is, is grappling with all three of these like categories yeah. of things to work on at any given time. The, the, we think the hard decision to make is actually like what percentage allocation do you put towards each of those three buckets? And that's actually something that's largely dependent on the product stage. So obviously if you're launching a new product, like almost all your efforts going to go to like, re, like bringing your vision to life. Yep. But as you get those first few customers, you might be like spending 50 or 60% of your time iterating on the feedback that they're providing you. And all of that feedback is probably then forming like some new vision where you're like, man, shoot, I thought this is where we should be headed. But as you're early trying to find that product market fit, you might be like switching directions a lot of times. Right. Yeah. And so, 
Um, and then the tech debt one, right? Like that becomes even more important as you get to scale, right? So like ignoring like performance issues when you have three customers, like it may not a huge deal, but important, you know, ignoring them when you have 3,000 or, or 30,000, totally different. It matters, so, it matters. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, so then we have like the roadmap and then we kind of look at the, the processes by which teams are actually shipping and like, is it efficient? Uh, are there a lot of dependencies? Uh, does it take a lot of time just to figure out like who should this go to or something like that? You know, when you have multiple product squads that are like building different or like working on different parts of the customer experience. What are some of the biggest challenges or problems you see happening? Is there a theme that you see going into companies that they go, you know what, this is, this is pretty normal. Everybody kind of struggles with X. Um, yeah, I think that if you look at the hot topic right now, I think there's still a challenge in, um, the waterfall mindset almost of like, I have a fixed scope solution that I need to build over some period of time right. and I need to know how long it's going to take. So I think that's probably still something that happens. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's a, the, the, at the root of it is sort of that product management is a new role that's taken many different shapes at many different organizations but often it's like grown out of a project management like world. And so it's kind of thought, thought, thought that way. Yeah. So I'd say the biggest part we focus on in addition to like the org structure on sort of the roadmap execution piece is like, how do you, I call it sort of investing proportionate to confidence. It's all the lean startup concepts, which yep. is like, how do I build the qualitative and quantitative evidence I need to justify spending more time on this solution in particular? So we use sort of like an alpha beta general availability concept of like rolling new features out. In fact, the roadmap like sort of column headings are not timelines, but rather what phase is like Sorry. a given feature. Um, and so the idea is like, in order to exit from alpha to beta, like in that story mapping exercise, the product person hopefully defined like what the exit criteria were, right? It might be qualitative, which is like, oh, you know, 80% of people we did usability testing with asked us when this feature is going to go live or something like that. Or they said that they would definitely use it, which is always one that I kind of wonder about. But um, So where's their money? <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, especially if there's payment involved. Yeah. Um, but the idea is that there's, there's kind of a stage gating process there. Mm -hmm. Um, which is that should we, you know, if in the alpha we spent like two weeks building it or three weeks, then should we now spend three months like fleshing out all these other details that we thought we needed to like get to? Have we validated some of those critical assumptions well enough? And I think this kind of comes back into a little bit of the, the discovery versus delivery trend that you might be seeing across some product teams, which is like, when do I get a chance to like think about what's coming next, you know, learn more from my customers on whether they actually want it and like maybe put something in front of them like a prototype to get feedback. One of the things that we've been, I wouldn't say consistently doing something we're trying to do more of is create, I'm, I'm really I'm really passionate about this, this idea of rhythms and disciplines. And so mm -hmm. I think one of the things that we try to get our clients to be thinking on is whether it's a monthly, you know, I love daily standups, I love weekly check-ins, I love retrospectives at the end of sprints. Those are all, they're great ceremonies and routines that really just build discipline. Um, and I think one of the ones that we're trying to get clients to take a look at is saying whether I think quarterly is kind of the rhythm we find works for most of our clients is once a quarter coming back and saying, how do we revisit some of these core attributes that we were originally going after? How do we revisit to make sure that we're all still aligned on kind of those key performance indicators that we thought the user wanted? Is that still true? Has anybody actually seen it or used it? Have we actually tested those things? Um, and then how do you, again, get them used to going, Hey, Next quarter, we're going to come back and ask these same questions. We're going to come back to it. And you start to get, again, into that rhythm and that discipline of doing it. Um, it's helped. 
uh, some clients like it, some don't. I mean, it's hard because you're basically saying, hey, stop for days or maybe even a full week worth of production work to start asking these really hard questions. Yeah, and I think the hard thing, like obviously having come out of the product management space, like um, it's kind of a, you know, there's never, it's sort of this never ending flow of work, right? So once one sprint is over, I'm kind of like thinking about the next one, but then it's, there's like, if you think about the lean cycle, it was like there was a measure of step in there. And when right. did I have time to go look back at whether people liked what we released, whether it moved the needle on some KPIs or not? Um, so I think like another thing that, that we look at on this process side is like where where is the quantitative and qualitative feedback loops built? Where are they built in? And how often are they, like you said, quarterly for sure. I think in some, you know, for earlier stage companies, it should be probably like way more frequently, like monthly or yeah, bi-weekly. Absolutely. And, and I think I love that you're framing it up in the fact that it does really depend on the stage of both the company, of the product itself, uh, maybe the maturity of the team. Um, For sure. So it sounds like your background's definitely been heavily in product management. Um, That's right. And even as you, I'm hearing you kind of define the way that you guys do consulting, in some ways you're kind of doing product management for hire a little bit until they got their own team and they start to build up their own processes. Is that correct? Am I, am I saying that right? Uh-huh. Actually, I would say. Um, Are you really coaching do, their product managers? Okay. Yep. Yeah. So we we actually don't do the distinction I make between sort of advising and coaching is whether there's a deliverable that sort of comes out, yeah. which is kind of on the consulting side, which is actually we do it once in a while, but most of what we do is actually advising their existing team awesome. and coaching them on like the vision led product management framework and how to apply it within the very nuanced nature of like their company and their product and their market. So. I love it. I love it. Okay. So if you were to say, what are a couple, maybe two or three of the main takeaways and let's focus into, because it sounds like most of the people you're at least coaching with or spending time with are product managers. And this season of our podcast, although we're stopping, we're not calling it a season anymore. We're just going to keep going. Uh, I don't know. We okay. started with, we started with season one and then we went, we don't really have a season plan after this. So in this kind of relaunch of the podcast, we're talking a lot about focusing in on the different members of the squad, if you will. And um, so we're going to be having conversations with designers, having conversations with um, product leaders. Sometimes that's someone that's actually saying, I'm not in the team, but I kind of delegate to the team. Um, Or in this case, product managers. Um, So what are the two or three takeaways that you you really want product managers to be thinking about um, as they either get into the profession or grow in their, their role? What does that look like? Yeah, I think um, it, it might actually be for all three of the folks that you just mentioned, honestly. But right. I'd say the, the two the three things I would ask product folks to think about, number one is, like I said, if you want to be a data-driven product manager, start thinking not only about what metrics matter to your business, uh, ARR, NPS, like all those things, retention, but also what is the key metric on your customer side? And like there, there's a, you know, at first you're just going to take a stab at it and then later you're going to learn more about your customers, but at least you have something to work with you realize that maybe we are measuring the wrong metrics, but definitely don't lose sight of what your customers value and how they and how they use their product because it gets really easy to just like focus on the internal metrics, I'd say is one. Um, the other one is like, like I said, I think product managers, like it's really easy to kind of zoom into your part of the customer journey. And this is a place where we, we really look to partner with design to sort of like elevate the role of design to start thinking at a like much more holistic level and to help us with like the vision, which is like, where do we want the customer experience to go? Um, you know, we've used a lot of design principles and things like that to help us shape the sort of direction of those things. But think of the design team as your, your you know, close partners. Uh, and then obviously engineering too, you know, not, not to say that like engineering isn't involved in some of those discussions, but 
I think the reason it's so important to have that something that defines that long-term vision is that um, it, it's just all about context when you're communicating with your stakeholders with product, right? So it's one thing to say, hey, we're gonna work on this thing for the next like, you know, sprint or two or three or quarter or whatever. But then there's like also the question of like, well, why is this the thing we're working on? Why is now the right time to work on it? Also, what happens, what's coming up after this? Mm-hmm. And I think that what's coming up after this is often something that's overlooked. But, uh, you know, Ben and I were actually just like talking about this the other day. It's like, I would argue that a lot of technical debt is actually caused by the fact that product managers never told engineering or design that this is the thing that's coming up next. And yep. so, you know, they, there's a technical implementation or a data model that assumed that a customer would always look like this without knowing that like, oh, we're actually going to go after this new market down the road. And like, hey, I get it. You know, hindsight's yeah, and I don't, I don't want to distract you from um, maybe the work that you need to get done in the near future. And so stay focused, but then you do it, you end up making these decisions that don't apply to a long-term goal. Yeah, and that's like the kind of core concept behind visual-led product management is that there is some end state in mind and so everyone can make the right decisions on like how to make progress towards that. Now, now if, if we realize that we have the wrong end state, that's like a totally different thing and sure. you might realize relatively quickly, but at least there's something that everyone's working towards. Ah, that's great. Um, so where do you go for inspiration? I mean, everybody who's thinking strategically and thoughtfully, they're thinking about um, learning. Um, and so I like to, to you know, kind of nerd out with the people that are nerding out about where do you go? Where do you get inspired? What's your go-to for um, uh, places that you get excited to, to read up on? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I follow a few thought leaders. I'd say mostly on Twitter is where I see the latest content and things yep. that they're talking about. So Marty Kagan, Teresa Torres, Gib Biddle. Um, and it's always great to see some of those folks. Um, I listened to a few podcasts and started listening to, to Krimas. Um, and then also uh, how I built this is like probably my favorite just as an entrepreneur. It's, it's so well produced too. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I'm not even going to try. We're not going to ever be that <laughs> that well produced. It's just so good. It, it is it is amazing the storytelling um and then also like holly hester riley's product science and then i also started listening to um masters of product management as well yeah. recently kind of cool to just hear how other product folks think about things um i also try to stay active in like product communities online so um, find the product and yep. pmhq some very active slack communities there's also a pm like subreddit that I'll, I'll i'll usually keep tabs on a few times a week just to hear what's going on um, it, that's helpful for me also to keep tabs on like, you know, what's going on now that I'm not like a full-time product manager myself, right, but like what are the right. things that people are grappling with? Um, and then I do my best to try to get to like local meetups here in Austin. Um, well, here Austin's got such an incredible community for that, which helps a lot. Yeah, for sure. And I've, um, I've enjoyed the products that count one recently. It's kind of ta- ta- targeted a little bit more as sort of product leadership and executives, but like just went to a really great one from Aceable here in town talking about the flywheel that they use to create, like become one of the fastest growing profitable companies here in town. It's awesome. I, I I gave up trying to, to tell my wife every story that I was hearing on every podcast or every meetup that I went to, because she's a nurse. She, she could care less to a certain extent and, and she's awesome at what she does. But, um, I just would always want to nerd out saying, no, you got, you, this is amazing. Like they, they were 200, 2000% growth and it shouldn't be that way. And we're not exactly sure why it was the right time, right place. And yet they've got this incredible culture and everything else. So, um, that's, that's great. Uh, one of the ones that, um, I've been listening to a lot lately is from Gimlet media uh, without fail. And it's not only around product, but it, um, what it's really interesting about is talking a lot about these people that we view as like massively successful people, the, the amount of failure and the amount of mistakes they had to go through or how they used those. And of course the whole like fail fast thing that's been over overused a bit, but, um, I, the first season starts with him and his wife 
at two thirty in the morning, waking up, and they're they're talking, and they go something along the lines of, "Why are we doing this?" And then she's like, "I don't know," because they're in partner partners with work together, and 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 basically he's like, "We should just give up." And it's this very authentic conversation. I love those stories. Um, yeah. Then of course I think what four months later they sold for one hundred and fifty million dollars. So, um, <laughs> but um, anyways. Okay, so kind of last question, then I, I you know, I want to definitely just open it up to any final thoughts here. But what's one thing that you get most excited about for about yourself, about the company, uh, about what you're working on right now? Obviously, you've built this framework, but um, what's something that you're just really passionate about um, the future for you guys? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it is the framework. Um, I, you know, when we set out to to launch Partify in the business, we kind of said like, you know, I was like, we should we need a mission. Like, we, we need to practice some of our own, like, you know, um, of our own best practices. So, I just think that for us, it's all about elevating the craft of product management. It is so new, and it is, um, you know, it's not a, it's not an easy thing to do, but also because it takes so many different flavors at different companies. Um, you know, we're, we I'm most excited about that. I kind of think back to my time as like a growing, like young product person. And I was like, man, if I had, if I had even known about one or two frameworks mm-hmm. that could have helped better in the, like the life cycle, um, that's it. So I'm excited to kind of help spread the word, um, on, on vision led product management. Um, but also like, you know, I think that the role of product is, is sort of an interesting, interesting place. Uh, and so it's kind of interesting to see what the, the next generation of like product management or the next chapter in the product management role function, uh, holds for, for us over the next like few years. I couldn't agree more. Honestly, this has been so great. Uh, I think there's so much goodness here for anyone who's in product in general. I think the whole product team, both the squad and the leadership could take a lot away from both your framework and just the way that you're thinking. Um, What's the best way if someone's wanting to get in touch with you, maybe work with you or learn from you, what's the best way to get in touch? Yeah, sure. So um, the website's probably the best way. It's prodify.group, so P-R-O-D-I-F-Y. Um, uh, or you can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. If you search my last name, Nerlikar, N-E-R-L-I-K-A-R. There's not that many of us in the oh, world. Fair so enough. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, Rajesh, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. And uh, I hope that you are able maybe to come back and tell us a story of kind of the scale that you were able to, to achieve from this framework. I'm really excited about it. I hope so too. All right, we'll talk soon. Thank you. Man, I really enjoyed that conversation with Rajesh. Um, I love his framework, the vision-led product management framework. Um, I think because it focuses not only on how products are made, but also on really understanding the key outcomes and metrics. One of the challenges that we have in product teams is how do we not only focus on definitely talking and listening to the feedback loop of customers, but also on how do you measure the success of what makes a great product? And he, he just nailed that. So I really appreciated that time with him and I hope that was useful for you as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Option 5. Make sure that you subscribe so that you get a new episode in your inbox every Monday. And um, as always, if you can, if you want to support what we're trying to do, give us a five-star review. That really helps us out, tells the world that we exist. And tell your friends, tell your coworkers, tell your bosses, and tell um, your team that Option 5 is the place to learn how to basically create the most effective, the most um, efficient, the, the coolest, the most fun product teams that are creating incredible products, and sometimes how they have to say yes and figure it out to get it done. Until next time, see you guys later.